Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the dynamic relationship between perpetrators and victims. With me is Dr. Anguin St. Just, who is a social traumatologist, a person who travels the world and goes into places such as war zones where extreme trauma has occurred so she can work with the people there. She is the author of the two-volume series, Trauma, Time, Space, and Fractals, and is also author of a five-volume series of books titled Trauma and the Human Condition. Welcome, Anguin. It's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. It's lovely to be here. In your work with trauma victims, you mm -hmm. found an interesting pattern that many of them become perpetrators or have been perpetrators, that it, it seems one can go back and forth quite a bit between being a perpetrator and being a victim. And perpetrators, I think, are some of the ones who uh, complain the, mo the loudest that they are the victims. Yes. yes. Well, I think biologically, the human species is both predator and prey. And some of us identify with predator, and some of us with prey, and to the exclusion of the other. However, the truth is, the biological truth is we're both. Mm -hmm. So my understanding of victims changed radically when I met a German um, philosopher, therapist, theologian, Bert Hellinger, mm -hmm. who uh, had extensive war history. He was drafted into the Wehrmacht at age 14. He was a prisoner of war. He became a priest after. Now, the Wehrmacht would be the German army, I presume. Yeah, it's yeah, it's the, the common army, not the SS. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a different... So we're talking uh, about the Second World War. Yeah, mm -hmm. and he's 14. Uh, captured by the British, so he was a prisoner. Um, then he became a priest uh, to the Zulu in South Africa, and became he was the headmaster of a school there. And from the Zulu, he um, apparently learned a very different set of understandings of how family systems work in relation to the ancestors and in terms of personal guilt and responsibility. And I avoided him like the plague because I had been working in uh, Munich and I, my students were coming and they're talking about this priest who was putting everything in order and uh, I was working with chaos. I was not interested in any uptight priest coming in and putting order in my chaos. Uh, but eventually he came to Boulder and he was not known in uh, the United States. There were maybe 15 people there. And I thought, well, it's time. I, I needed to really uh, have a look, experience um, what it is that has people so excited about him because Germany certainly has a history of both uh, as a nation being perpetrators and victims. Mm -hmm. Extremes, both, yeah. both. And he lived both. Mm -hmm. um, and this sweet old man came in and he sat down and he said, okay, who wants to work? And I thought, what? <laughs> Where's the overview, the PowerPoint, the reading, that nothing, just who wants to work? Mm -hmm. And he began working with people. And within a few minutes, I realized that 
he had a method for working with collective trauma, for working with trauma larger than the family. And being a historian, I knew a lot about that, but I had no idea how to actually work with it clinically. Mm -hmm. And he knew. And I think it's fair to say we're all subject to collective trauma. Well, yeah. I mean, we all belong. Mm -hmm. We belong to families. We belong to religions. We belong to clans, tribes, nations, and, and so on. And But how to actually work with collective trauma, at that point... Um, what was then called social trauma. People working with social trauma were researchers. They were researching, but they weren't really engaging with it. Mm -hmm. That this was more the uh, realm of the shamans and the medicine people. Mm -hmm. And the way they would work with it would be through ritual and through contact with the ancestors and like that. But that was certainly not part of um, family therapy or uh, any clinical tradition that I was familiar with. Mm -hmm. But he was working with something he called the informational field, which, um, I mean, he doesn't have drums and feathers and things like that, but he actually brought the shamanic aspect of trauma work with the collective back into family therapy and from there began to expand it into groups larger than um, the family and I saw him working and I thought aha he has the missing piece for trauma and the missing piece is the informational field because the informational field and the shamans and medicine people know this the informational field is timeless and it knows everything so if you don't know you just ask the field mm -hmm. so it's like well how do you ask the field so my you're talking about something akin to what uh, spiritual people might call the akashic record yeah mm -hmm. yeah Something like that. It has a lot of names. Teilhard uh, de Chardin talked about the newest sphere. Yes. Mm -hmm. And there's all the information that ever was, but it's timeless. Mm -hmm. And when you step into that, you step into this, it's also called the knowing field. It's timeless and it's accessible. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's... Could be the basis of remote viewing. Yes, that too. It ab Absolutely. So... Um, my German professional partner has a way of describing the informational field. People are like, what's that? I can't see it. You know? And he says, it's like Wi-Fi. It's everywhere. And there are all these channels and all of this information, but we don't see it. We mm -hmm. don't hear it. That we need a, a device mm -hmm. to download the information that we're looking for. And what Hellinger was saying is the human being is the device that we interact, that the informational field is interactive and that we are the device that we can mm -hmm. download through, we call it representatives, representing something or someone when we need to resolve something. So I thought this is a way of working with collective trauma. And I got very excited putting trauma and this what was then called family constellation mm -hmm. work together. Mm -hmm. But as I got to know Bert Hellinger, um, we had a conversation then where I said, you know, you have the missing piece for us, the trauma people. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you have the missing piece for me, which is trauma. So he said, come with me, and I'm doing pilot projects, and I'm going to some prisons, and I want to study the victim-perpetrator dynamic. Mm -hmm. And Inside I, the prison. Yes. Mm -hmm. So, of course, I went, and I was new. I was nearly American, and since we were in England, 
he insisted everybody speak English. Um, we worked in three prisons with murderers. Mm-hmm. And we worked all day with these cases. Then we had dinner with him every night, and we could ask questions. Well, you and I have this in common because, as, as we discussed earlier, in my you know, early years as a graduate student in criminology, I did uh, volunteer work in the psychiatric unit of San Quentin Prison doing group therapy with murderers and rapists. Yeah, and there's a mm-hmm. lot to learn. It's like, yeah. what is that? Well, I just might say the fundamental lesson that I learned is that these people are at, at gut level no different than you or me. Exactly. And and which was the opposite of what I was being told by my supervisors mm-hmm. in the prison who were saying these are a different yeah. kind of cat. Yeah. You know, they they're not like us. They're not quite human. Yeah. I think there's a difference with the serial killers. Um, but I don't want to go okay. that way right That's now. That's a real extreme. I, th- I think they are different. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're still human. Yeah. I mean, they're just on the extreme end of sure. the Sure. You know, they have to um, use the bathroom the same as we do. Yeah, it's true. So, um, we were in three different prisons. Mm-hmm. And um, Britain, one was a children's prison which was uh, difficult to be there, but these kids uh, were killers. Yeah. Or had been involved in some... <coughs> so, uh, at that point, he was... Uh, he, he describes his method as phenomenological, like he allows the field to inform him. So he doesn't go in with a huge agenda. It's mm-hmm. just like, let's see what the field shows. And he had some ideas because he was also a psychoanalyst. But the process was the more the field showed him, the less interesting psychoanalysis turned out to be, particularly in the realm of perpetrators and victims. And um, what became clear is with all of these perpetrators, there was a family history of homicide, that they were in fact reenacting somebody else's fate. Because the conventional wisdom is that uh, perpetrators uh, were probably abused as children, and you're suggesting uh, something a little different. Yeah, that they are reenacting somebody else's fate. Mm-hmm. And at some point we had talked about the Columbine killers, yes. and they were not abused as children, but they were killers, mm-hmm. uh, mass murderers, actually. So what uh, he had learned from the Zulu is the importance of the ancestors and finishing the business with each generation mm-hmm. in terms of perpetrator-victim balance and accommodation and coming to some kind of reconciliation. Otherwise, subsequent generations are going to have to repeat that. So we were seeing these murderers had actually reenacted somebody else's fate. And it would happen like um, they were in a fight. Uh, They didn't mean to kill anybody, but they did. And things like that. So it's not like uh, the first word that popped into my mind when when you brought it up, I was thinking, oh, they're taking revenge. But that's not what you mean at all. No. No. They found themselves in a a strange movie. And it's Mm -hmm. like um, they were acting out something that had to do with unfinished business from the previous generations. Some kind of a pattern that was mm-hmm. longing to be fulfilled. Well, yeah. And here we get into entanglement. Mm-hmm. That, you know, spooky things at a distance. Mm-hmm. You know, Dean Radin's written lots about yeah. this. And Helena was talking about how if the perpetrator-victim dynamic is not resolved in the previous generation, that somebody will take on the fate of um, someone from that unresolved dynamic. 
So that brings in the whole question of free will, which mm. is complicated enough. But it seems as if what you're suggesting is that unconsciously I or any of us are maybe endeavoring to fulfill the uh, unfulfilled uh, desires or ambitions of our ancestors. Yes. Also to repeat crimes. Mm -hmm. um, and we began to see the patterns that they replicate. And at some point I said, you're working with fractals. Fractals. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I don't call it that. He said, let me tell you how I see it. Mm -hmm. When I sit with um, a client, and he... he he sits, but he's quiet, and he attunes mm -hmm. with this person. Mm -hmm. And he said, I don't say it, but I imagine that I'm sitting with, like, a piece of a leaf, like in the Russian Karelian photography. The phantom leaf of Yeah, uh -huh. so you have a piece of a leaf, but there's a pattern of yes. the whole leaf. So he says, I feel like I'm sitting with a piece of a leaf, but I see the whole leaf attached to a branch that belongs to a tree that's in a forest, in a landscape. In so other words, the informational field that he referred to earlier that he works with is mm -hmm. he, he by bringing up curly in photography you're you're making the analogy to mm -hmm. what the russians used to call the bioplasmic field yeah. which is kind of a um, formative field it it contains within it the structural pattern of the leaf even though the leaf has maybe been cut in half the whole leaf shows up in the bioplasmic mm -hmm. field as photographed supposedly by curly in photography yeah. so even though we have a person or a symptom mm -hmm. or an event, it's part of larger, larger, a larger, larger pattern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And as we looked at this, then the question is, with the perpetrators and the victims, how do you bring about reconciliation and healing for both? Now, this gets complicated with his view of victims, mm -hmm. because this is cross-culturally complicated, but um, he said it's important to differentiate between victimization and victim consciousness. Uh -huh. And he said victimization is very real. There, It is what it is. Mm -hmm. However, he said victim consciousness is something different. And in victim consciousness, one feels oneself um, to be powerless. Mm -hmm. And he said, in often in order to take power back, the victim will become a perpetrator. And he said, victim consciousness leads to violence. The irony is that when I think of people who protest the loudest about being victims, they are very often the people of privileged status. Yes. Like they're complaining about the war against Christmas or something, <laughs> yeah. as if Christmas is in any danger. I know. I, it's, it's irrational, uh -huh. but they're very passionate about it. Yeah. And this identity uh, as a victim. Mm-hmm. Uh, that I had not heard this victim consciousness described so clearly before, but he said the victim statement is, I'm a victim and you owe me. Therefore, because I am a victim, you cannot criticize me. I am special. And I'm not responsible. Which sounds like a rather aggressive attitude. Doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's like you can't criticize. After all I've been through, I, you know, mm -hmm. I'm innocent. Also, he said that the victim claims innocence. Yeah. And he says we're none of us innocent. Well, I, I, there's some truth to that. We are none of us innocent on the one hand. On the yeah. other hand, it does seem to me that there is a problem in our culture of blaming the victim. 
Like it's the fault of poor people that they're poor. Yes, and that's a form of collective perpetration. Mm -hmm. However, uh, there's a self-righteousness also in claiming the underdog position, which can be quite aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started to think about this um, because, of course, this is coming out of uh, German culture where the Germans have certainly um, fulfilled both roles um, collectively for sure and uh, in the, in German culture there is a certain contempt for weakness mm-hmm. um, that's still there it's probably true in any male dominated culture yeah but yeah. I, I started to think, is that the way it is with the Americans? And I thought, mm, it's a little bit different over here, that um, we definitely have the entitlement of victims, mm-hmm. whereby the question then is, well, where can I get a lawyer? Mm-hmm. And how much money, how much compensation? And the jury decides uh, how much you're suffering is worth as a monetary value, which is different. The Germans don't do that. Um, But the Americans have a very monetary uh, that you can fix, uh, you can appease a victim Mm -hmm. uh, with money. And I thought, yes, and does it heal? And it's no, it doesn't. But that's our system. And I was thinking, well... Uh, I, I think it does heal sometimes. At least it goes a step in that direction. Mm. I say that, uh, Anwin, because I once was a plaintiff and I prevailed in a in a lawsuit and mm-hmm. uh, it was very painful. I was libeled after I got my doctoral diploma in parapsychology. I fought that lawsuit for six years and uh, to the extent that uh, I'm able to, uh, for example, uh, fund the New Thinking Aloud video channel. I, I owe some of that to uh, uh, the uh, settlement I received back in 1986. It seems like that you approach that challenge more as an injustice. Yes. Um, and then utilized uh, the justice with something that was of service to yeah. it. That's a little bit different, mm-hmm. I think, in tone. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, I... I still feel the wound of having been libeled, I can tell you that. Yeah. It still stings when I think about it. Yeah, and... The question then would be, what else is needed to heal that? Mm-hmm. And it's probably not money. No, but I think these interviews help. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. So we're on the right path. Yeah. Uh, in Japan, for example, I was interested to learn that after the atomic um, explosions, that the people who were affected, um, they're called hibakusha. Um, were marginalized in society, that they had difficulty getting employment, they were not allowed to marry uh, because they were potentially genetically damaged mm-hmm. or physically disfigured. And in that culture, the um, the victim was became a non-person, mm-hmm. which is very different. Um that's one of the dangers of finding yourself in the position of a victim is that uh, nobody loves you when you're down and out. Except sometimes victims become celebrities in America, mm-hmm. but that's not true in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Russia, I found there's a very strong victim consciousness that the at the time I was there, it was in the early, when I first went, the early 90s, they were still feeling victimized by the German invasion. Well, they uh, suffered, what, 20 million deaths? More. More than that during yeah. the Second World War. Yeah. They, 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 it's hard for Westerners to appreciate the enormity of the suffering the Russian people have had to endure. 
end, a lot of it was due to Stalin disappeared 30 million people. Mm. And, you know, that was not due to the Nazis. Um, I was in, here's another anniversary reaction, um, I was at this trauma clinic, um, I think it was the 22nd of June, and I showed up, you know, unusual, in the morning, and there was such a pall over the place. I thought, oh my God, what happened? My translator wasn't there, and my Russian was not um, fluent yet, and there was like this funereal, and nobody was looking at anybody, and it was, I thought, something terrible must have happened. And I eventually my translator showed up, and I said, what is going on here? And she said, well, don't you know what day it is? And I said, it's 22nd of June. She said, yeah, this is the day that the Luftwaffe invaded um, Russian airspace. And I thought, well, that was a long time ago. <laughs> they, w- yeah. they were, they reacted as if it happened yesterday. Uh-huh. And they were in this victim um, mm-hmm. paralysis, almost. Yeah. Um, and the head of the clinic later, we sat down with a nice glass of something, and he said that... Um, he had um, visions and dreams of the planes coming still. Mm-hmm. Like over half a century later. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that the shock to the entire, to Mother Russia mm-hmm. being what they said, um, the Germans raped Mother Russia, and they were all collectively in this victim consciousness mm-hmm. still. That was an eye-opener. And then I was asked to work with these grieving mothers Mm -hmm. who'd lost sons Mm -hmm. in the war in Afghanistan. And um, I had never done anything like that, but I thought, okay, you know, I know something about that in my family. And um, these women all were black, and they wore pictures, photographs of their sons, and they were addressed by everyone everywhere as mother. Mm. And they had a revered status as women that they would not have were they not the mother of a fallen soldier. Mm-hmm. And these women, I met with these women, and it was clear to me that nothing was going to move because they had community they had they were with others who understood their particular mm-hmm. kind of pain. It was like a support group, mm-hmm. but they were stuck because the secondary benefits of being a victim, yeah, mm-hmm. and that when another mother's group from the war in Chechnya formed, you would think, "Oh, well, these women have something in common, and maybe if they joined together, they could do something more mm-hmm. political, yeah. and they would." They were very aggressive toward the other mothers because it wasn't their war. And they felt that they became absolutely very aggressive and tried to get these other mothers from getting any funding or any... Um, They're competing for scarce resources. Yes, and mm-hmm. also it's um, somehow competing about who was in more pain. Mm-hmm. Um which was not all that healthy, actually. Uh, from an outsider's point of view, I'm not yeah. Russian, so... <sighs> but, but I think there is a tendency in some cultures for people to revel in their misery. Well, religion has something to do with that. Mm-hmm. You know, some, in some religions, it's... Um, Suffering brings you closer to God. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you think about all the lives of the saints. My goodness, what a handbook to torture. You have St. Lawrence on the grill, St. Catherine on the wheel, and, you know, in these chapels, you've got all these graphic descriptions of horrific yeah. 
Well, in a previous interview, you pointed out the uh, what you thought might have been a terrible mistake made by the ancient、uh, Mesoamericans with their <laughs> ritual of taking a knife and cutting open the, the chest and pulling out the heart while it's still beating. The, the the message you thought was you have to open your heart to God, and、yeah. so they were doing it literally. Yeah, lost in translation.、Mm -hmm. Yeah, all through Mesoamerica was the same. This we have to open the hearts,、yeah. or open the hearts of our of the captives. Well, actually, they tortured their captives in all kinds of horrific ways as well, as part of the religion. And, but, but, but you get this sense, though, that there is a Uh, a principle involved here that、mm -hmm. people do open their hearts when they experience pain and suffering. It's kind of an irony, but、uh, I've heard it over and over、mm -hmm. again、uh, from different people. I have such a wonderful guru; he broke my heart. Open.、Mm -hmm. He broke my heart. It's a Sufi prayer. Please, God, break my heart open. Yeah. But it, it's. Complex.、Yeah. So then, looking at this perpetrator-victim、mm -hmm. dynamic, victim consciousness,、yeah. Hellinger took it further, and he said, "Perpetrators and victims are in a trauma bond." A trauma bond. How interesting.、Mm -hmm. And if they don't resolve it, their descendants will.、Mm -hmm. They're locked together in a dance. That's right.、Mm -hmm. Right, and、um, in recent years, I've been doing a lot of work with trauma and relationships between, particularly between men and women,、mm -hmm. and men, women in war,、mm -hmm. and looking together with my German colleague,、um, how people, how couples get together unconsciously from conflictual systems that there seems to be some attraction. Between systems of perpetrators and victims, and then the family feels a disloyalty, a betrayal. They say, "How could you? How could you go with one of them?"、Mm -hmm. But you know, people fall in love, and the attraction is very strong, and they feel like, "Well, we're so in love, we can overcome." Uh, that was all the, the Romeo、path. and Juliet. There it is, you <laughs>、uh -huh. know, the past.、Um, and then, you know, in the second stage of relationship, which is power struggle,、mm -hmm. uh, then you have the systems at war through the couple.、Mm -hmm. And it is a fact that young people from warring systems. Are attracted, just like you said, Romeo and Juliet, and the families react badly、mm -hmm. to this. So, what is the solution to?、Uh, well, looking at the perpetrator-victim bond from a linear perspective, you want to think that the victim just wants to get away from the perpetrator,、right. but they can't because, in a way, they're Freud said they were introjects. Introjects.、Mm -hmm. What what did Freud mean by that? That the perpetrator, the tormentor, takes resonance inside the psyche of the victim.、Hmm. So in a way, they're in a bond, and with the perpetrator as well, they have、uh, this connection with、mm -hmm. their victims, and. The justice system isn't quite equipped to work on this level. They internalize each other. Yeah,、mm -hmm. deeply.、Mm -hmm. so、there's a sense in which they need each other. Yeah,、mm -hmm. and they can't get away. Well, it does remind me a lot of、uh, the symbol that、uh, we have for this television video channel, the yin yang, the、yeah. rainbow yin yang, where each half has within it the seed of its opposite. Exactly.、Mm -hmm. So, what, how to resolve this? So he came up with a method,、um, which he calls movement of the soul. We're talking about Hellinger. Hellinger,、mm -hmm. and、um, he sets up a representative for the perpetrator and the victim, and there's no talking. It's completely somatic,、mm -hmm. and what happens is they fall in love.
and then they fall down and rest together. It's quite something to see, because it's not what you would expect. And sometimes working with someone from a family where there's been um, perhaps a domestic quarrel which got out of hand and somebody got killed, mm-hmm. and they're, they're really horrified by all of this, you set up the couple on the soul level. And this is important, because the healing's not on the personality level. It's on the soul level. And, and what does that mean to you? That means to me, and it did to Hellinger, that it's best to set them up after death. Because the personality level is not dominant, then you have the soul level. And the movement of the soul is quite something to see as the movement toward reconciliation because the attraction is very strong. Now you better explain though what you mean set them up after death. <laughs> <laughs> Take a rep- anybody representative mm-hmm. for okay. um, the murderer mm-hmm. and the victim. Mm-hmm. And I mean, are you saying they've already died, but now we're going to, they have in fact already died. Mm-hmm. Like let, let us say the mm-hmm. uh, French and the uh, Russians in the Napoleonic Wars or something. Take a soldier representative from each side Mm -hmm. after death, Mm -hmm. and they will bond Mm -hmm. and fall together. It's like a psychodrama process. Yes, except there's no drama in the... You don't act out. With this kind of work, you don't act. You are a channel actually, mm-hmm. for you're the receiver okay. from the field. Mm-hmm. And it's no talking and no acting. Because that is psychodrama. That's not mm-hmm. what we're doing. Okay. Um, it's more of a meditative process. Yeah, and it's slow. It's slow. It's like a slow-motion ballet. Mm-hmm. You set up the representatives for the conflict or the perpetrator victim and you see the attraction and then the reconciliation and the solution is they lie down together um and now who is benefiting from that the i mean the deceased people do you think that actually changes their culture or is it for the living there's no agreement about that um, I think it's both. Okay. I think it's both. I can accept that. But I have noticed that the family system calms down mm-hmm. when they see that these two people actually loved each other and something went wrong. and Or that this was something between the French and the Germans. And yeah. uh, the, on the soul level, the greatest, the strongest movement was toward reconciliation. Mm-hmm. And there's something very healing just seeing that. Mm-hmm. And it's been it's been postulated that maybe you know you have the the two leaders of the opposing uh, armies are buried together, or so that everybody can grieve all of it, not just our soldiers or their soldiers or just our people or their people, but we grieve together all of it, and then that settles something in mm-hmm. the conflictual field. Now, I suppose that can work pretty well for a conflict that uh, has ended a long, long time ago where you don't have fresh uh, wounds and fresh emotions around it, but I know you you go into war zones right mm-hmm. away once, once the shooting is stopped. <laughs> uh, how, how do you do it, work with people in that context? It's too soon. Uh huh. It's too soon. Because very often, victims want revenge. Yeah, and this is where where um, victim consciousness leads to violence. Mm-hmm. So then, the question is, well. Who are the victims that were not, didn't have victim consciousness? Do we, do we have, are there such people? Mm-hmm. And my favorite is Nelson Mandela, who was definitely a victim. Mm-hmm. 
victimization is not challenged. Spent decades in prison. In short pants and and the whole humiliating. And he did not have victim consciousness. And it was really um, the movement toward the truth and reconciliation movement in South Africa. So in other words, you can be victimized, but you need not adapt or adopt victim consciousness. Because then you're caught in the cycle. Yeah of getting your power back through revenge. Mm-hmm. And I thought of Timothy Leary coming out of a year in solitary. He comes out beaming and he says, thank you, I needed time to meditate. It's a very different attitude. Yeah. Um, you had suggested Helen Keller. Yes, Helen Keller. Well, she, I don't know. She was born, you know, blind and... Never said, poor me. That was not right. her attitude. I can't do that. I can't see or hear or No. No. No, she did not have victim consciousness. The interesting thing to me about the Helen Keller story, mm. as it relates to the issue of victim and perpetrator, is that uh, I mean, she was a child who could not see and could not hear, but she had a teacher, Annie Sullivan, just portrayed in this wonderful play and movie, The Miracle Worker. Well, Annie Sullivan had a real temper. Yeah. And, and it was because of her temper, her aggressive style, that she got through to Helen Keller. Mm-hmm. And, and Helen Keller turned out to be an incredible human being because she learned how to compensate for her lack of vision and hearing because of what she had been taught. Mm-hmm. It was not an easy thing for Annie Sullivan to teach a child who can't see or hear. But somehow she knew that was her mission yeah. and that it was larger than that child. Mm-hmm. And we call it now tough love, I guess. Yeah. Um, so there's a difference between tough love and being a real aggressor. It sometimes looks the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in the long run. Uh, but basically, the goal of the perpetrator-victim work is reconciliation and to not pass this conflict into the next generation. Yeah. Well, we see it politically. Uh, Jesus, long ago, said, you know, love thy enemy, <laughs> resist not evil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think uh, the principle there is that you become what you resist. The Greeks have a word for it. I'm not sure I can pronounce it right, but it's en antiandromia, where things tend to morph into their extremes. Mm-hmm. But before it flips, it has to go to an extreme. Mm-hmm. And then it flips into its opposite, opposite uh-huh. or you become what you resist. Yeah. You know, and I, I think about, you know, my parents' generation fought the Nazis. Mm-hmm. And now. Uh, well, there's a paradox. I guess it has to do with the nature of evil. Mm-hmm. It, itself, some people say, you know, evil is an illusion. It's a human concept. But uh, if we take some group, let, perhaps was the Nazis. I mean, one, it's hard to argue that what they did was not evil. And, uh, that leaves you with uh, only one choice. You have to defeat them totally if you're going to engage in, in a conflict. You can't, you know, do it halfway. But in destroying the Nazi regime totally, you become like them. Yes. Yes, and we have. <laughs> and we have. Turn on the news. To a chilling extent. Turn on the news. It's yeah. all there. Mm-hmm. And fascism is in the news every day. Yeah. Um, and you have the Holocaust victims who ended up founding the state of Israel now being accused of being aggressors themselves well, with, they with are. regard to their neighbors. They are, because somehow they believe their survival depends on it. They really believe that. And so round it goes. Um, yeah, I, 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 
I hate to take a political stand <laughs> with regard to Israel because I, uh, I see it from both sides. But the thing that really uh, concerns me in this situation is if you have a belief that the only way to stop an enemy from attacking you is is to punish them even worse, and they have the same belief, uh-huh. then it just perpetuates itself. I think it's an endless cycle. As a historian, mm-hmm. uh, that the Middle East is one of these um, places on the planet where there is an ongoing field disturbance mm. that has been there for thousands of years, ongoing. And if you go over to Israel and you ask who are the victims and who are the perpetrators, they will tell you they are the victims of the Palestinians. Mm-hmm. Then you go over and talk to the Palestinians and you say, well, this is, tell me about this conflict. And they'll say, the Israelis are the perpetrators and we're the victims. Yep. And this is a recipe for ongoing. Mm-hmm. Violence. I mean, which is nothing new in that part of the world. Now there are peaceniks on both sides. Yeah, there always have been. Yeah. Um, but again, you have that. The um, last peacenik prime minister of Israel was murdered. Yeah, that happens. And again, I think that is one of the places on earth where. The field has been so disturbed for so many thousands of years that it's very difficult to settle into any kind of long-term peace. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there are other places on the planet. The Balkans is another area since before the Romans. And they're at it again with the tribal warfare and the religious and the genocide and... Well, in, in a way, it kind of comes down to uh, sort of tribalism. Yes. And Hellinger talked about that. He said, you know, humans have tribal consciousness. And he said, in tribal consciousness, this is where we get into good and evil. Because he said that it's a matter of good conscience and bad conscience. And he said, in tribal consciousness, you know exactly what you must do and not do to belong to your tribe. So you can be a good Nazi in good conscience because you are being loyal to your tribe. Mm -hmm. You can be a good inquisitor in the Catholic faith because you're in good conscience doing what you need to do to belong to that belief system. Mm. And if you try to leave it, you have a bad conscience because you're going against the tribe. And he also said there's no progress without guilt, which means if you try to step beyond tribal consciousness... You're going to feel, you're going to have a bad conscience and you're going to feel guilty. But if you don't, you're stuck in tribal consciousness, which is all about us and them and what we have to do to remain in good conscience with our tribe. And you know, I think there's a lot of things to celebrate about tribes. Yes. They, they have uh, crafts and artwork and music yeah, and yes. poetry and ritual and togetherness and a sense of belonging. They take care of each other. There are many wonderful things about tribes, but the the human spirit is so much larger than that. Yeah, and there's more beyond our tribe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, there is this conflict. If we step beyond, we have the bad conscience and the guilt. And if we don't, we're at tribal consciousness. And and in a way, politics in the United States has become tribal. I've oh, absolutely. I've heard that, use, uh, that term more. used quite Red a bit. and blue. Yeah. Absolutely. And... Um, yeah, and you know, if some well-meaning politician steps out of the party line, they're called traitors. Mm-hmm. Betrayal. Yeah. 
and and it's it's vicious. There, there is definitely a sense within the tribe of that there of betrayal occasionally if if somebody dare criticize yeah a tribe member yeah mm-hmm. and you know in some tribes you will die a horrible death if you uh, step outside of mm-hmm. so then you know the the question of good and evil is still there and on the one hand i think it's true that we wouldn't know what was good if we didn't have evil and we wouldn't know what evil was if we only had good. you know that we only know one in yeah. relation to the other mm-hmm. well it, the, to me there's a paradox I- involved which is we live in a world of duality good and bad right and wrong hot and cold black and white but we also simultaneously live in a world of wholeness, of oneness, of, mm-hmm. uh, as, as some people uh, call it, non-duality. Yeah. But you have to move out of tribal consciousness to get there. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, um, I, I get caught in the loop of, why does it have to be that way? Mm-hmm. And... At one point, because uh, something was just so awful, or something was just too much, or and Hellinger said, "England, it all belongs." That's, it's a tough lesson to swallow at times. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you think of genocide, for example, mm-hmm. it maybe it does all belong, but I hate to just sort of accept that. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Well, this is a good note to end on. And I I often feel like uh, the best interviews are the ones that end on this theme of oneness and and wholeness. But in our discussion, I can see you pointed out how difficult it can be to come to that. It's a process. Mm -hmm. It's a journey. Well, Anguin St. Just, this has been a very heartfelt journey to, to share this with you and, and your vast experience working with people under some of the most difficult imaginable conditions. Thank you for being with me. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for being with us.